Welcome to WNL After Class, the lifelong learning podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Candler. Our guest today is Sasha Golubov, professor of cultural anthropology. After earning her master's degree and PhD in anthropology from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Sasha conducted ethnographic research in Russia and Azerbaijan. Her scholarship includes a wide range of interests, including Jewish revival movements and race and ethnicity in the United States. Sasha has been a faculty member at WNL since 1999, including a five-year stint as chair of the Sociology and Anthropology Department. Sasha has also served as director of the Office of Community-Based Learning since 2020. Sasha, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's begin with a simple question. What is ethnography? Oh, yeah, ethnography. So when I talk to students about what cultural anthropology is, I say what I learned from my advisor in graduate school, and he said to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And so the idea is to maybe if you come across something, a ritual or an idea or a concept that you're not familiar with, first it seems strange, but then if you read ethnography, which is sort of the detailed um, observations and participation of an anthropologist, either from the community or from outside the community to explain it, then after a while it seems sort of normal and natural. You get to understand why people do it and the reasoning behind it. And then once that happens, then I really encourage students to think about some of our practices and practices they do. And if we can apply a sort of ethnographic lens to it, they can see, well, and then comparing it to the practices they just learned about, they can see, well, maybe the way we do things isn't so normal and natural. It's just a product of culture too. And so bringing those two experiences together really leads people to be reflective about why we do it and what we do and ways to make things more humane um, for everybody. What a great explanation. Thank you. I love I love the way your advisor explained it <laughs> as well. So of all the places in the world, you chose to begin your career in ethnography in Moscow during the mid-1990s. Were you a little nervous? I mean, what made you venture off to the Soviet Union right after it fell apart? Um, I was interested in Russia because my father's father came from Ukraine, and I had discovered also that on my mother's side of the family, there was a series of photos that my great aunt had, and one of those photos on the back, it was written in Russian um, to her daughter who was emigrating to the United States. And I was the only one who could read it in the family because everybody else didn't know Russian. So for me, learning Russian, I started in high school and it was a way to connect with my past. Both my grandparents didn't talk much about the past. I mean, that's the way things were done back then. They were really focused on assimilating and mainstreaming themselves. Um, Not like it is today where people are really celebrating their cultural differences. So I was just interested in that. And then I was able to go to... Russia when I was an undergrad at Colgate University. It was uh, a study abroad, and it was the Soviet Union then. Um, And I just fell in love with that. I liked the experience of being in another place, another culture, and not knowing what to do next, just sort of (laughs) 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 Uh, freestyling it. Um, I I call that brave, (laughs) freestyling it. I I started off in archaeology, and I really enjoyed doing excavations and working in the lab. But in terms of thinking about that society, it was based on reading and my own imagination. And then here I was entering into a different world, especially when it was the Soviet Union, because we were cut off. There wasn't the internet back then. So we were cut off from America. And we just had to 
experience life as lived there. So I just love that. Love the challenge and the thrill. Um, and I wanted to go back. So after you completed your dissertation, you conducted your research while living in a remote village in northern Azerbaijan. What was it like to live in that environment as an outsider? Right. So I had become interested in uh, the uh, population of Jews living there. They're called mountain Jews. Um, and their language is Chihuri, which is they speak a dialect of uh, Persian. They were part of the Persian Empire and then were spread up there over time. I met uh, a lot of great folks from that community in Moscow. I was just really interested in going back to the one remaining village in Azerbaijan. A lot of people had left due to economic hardship. That one village remained and some people would stay there and others would come back on holidays. So I met somebody who used to live in the village and she contacted a family who could host me. And it was very unusual for an outsider to live with a host family because that community is really close um, and everybody knows everybody. And also because I was a grown woman, I couldn't live in a family with any grown men um, because I wasn't a relative. So the family they picked to host me was a mom and her, she was a widow and her three young children. So I lived with them um, twice. I lived with them for one, one winter and then I came back in the summer to finish my research. Once I took a taxi from the capital of Baku and he dropped me off. Uh, and I originally had gone to Indiana University, has a great summer language program, and I went there to learn Azeri, but um, I took it over the summer, and then I didn't go back until the following winter, so I had forgotten some things. So when I got to the village, I was told that the family members there didn't speak their native language, um, Judeo-Tat, they didn't speak it, but when I got to the family, they did speak it. Um, <laughs> and that's all they spoke amongst themselves. So luckily, the my Azri was really weak, but the daughter knew Russian, so I was able to um, converse with her. And then I started to create a um, a notebook with different words, so I can help me communicate. It was isolating but fascinating. So it, the experience sounds challenging on many fronts. Did did you make any friends while you were there? Or was anyone that you could lean on for support? I mean, you talked about this daughter who spoke Russian and you could communicate that way. But if you don't have internet and, uh, you know, not Well, but by that and... point, I had a, I had bought a phone um, and um, actually somebody lent me a phone and I got one of those SIM cards. So I had made a friend in Baku and so I was able to talk to her. But no, besides that, I was basically on my own. So you had completed your dissertation and you were living in this remote village. What exactly were you studying? So one of the things that really fascinated me about the mountain Jews was their ability to hold on to certain traditions, even through the Soviet times. So one of the main traditions that you see among a lot of um, peoples who live in that area, as well as around the Mediterranean, was are extremely long and detailed death rituals. And women play a big part in those rituals. Women. Um, uh, the role in the mountain Jewish communities, there's a special woman as her role is to gather all the women who are mourning the death of an individual, gather them in the room with the, usually with the um, coffin of the individual. And she reminds them of all the hardships they faced, all the deaths they've had in their individual families so that they mourn collectively for the dead. 
So her her job is uh, the tear maker. It's called Gidesoch. She makes the tears. And she has to know the family history of each individual person in the village. So I was interested in that. So you mentioned that you had studied uh, Russian and Aziri languages at Indiana University's language workshop. These are difficult languages. Did did learning these come naturally to you since you had studied Russian in high school? No. At <laughs> 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 <Yeah>, all. <laughs> I studied Russian in high school. I and also studied French. So when I got to college, to Colgate, I had to choose. And I thought, since I suffered so much with Russian, I should continue. Like, what? What is that about? I don't we know. We also but... have that family connection, though, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, so I did. I... It's all about suffering the long, <laughs> cold winter. So um, I chose that. And you know, they say with Russians, the alphabet's the hardest, but it's really not. It's every word um, changes its form depending on where it is in the language. Can you give us an example? Oh, it's been a really long time since I spoke Russian. But if it's as if it's part of a preposition or it's a um, direct object, the word changes, and words can either be masculine, feminine, or neutral. So you need to know all the different versions. With with Azeri, it's a Turkish language, and so the verb goes at the end of the sentence. So for me, that summer was a really brain trip, trying to force myself to put the verb at the end. And also, there were a couple of letters that were hard for me to pronounce, this sort of the O with the umlaut, sort of an U sound. And I remember my teacher saying, like, just pretend you're about to kiss somebody. E. (laughs) I wish wish I had a picture of that so that we could post it on the show notes because that was fabulous. So it was my mouth would be really tired by the end of the day and my brain would be fried. Um, But um, I would I just spent a lot of time studying. It's a lot about repetition, writing out words, repeating words. It never really it never came easy to me. Later, you became interested in race and ethnicity in the United States. Tell us more about that transition. So uh, I I got married, and um, our first son was born. And I really did not want to bring him to Azerbaijan. I know people do that, really brave anthropologists who will travel with babies to different countries. But I didn't really feel comfortable with that. So I had moved. We had bought a house in Brownsburg, Virginia, um, which is not that far from here. And one of the things that really fascinated me about that area was there were two churches. There was uh, the the New Providence Presbyterian, which is mostly a white congregation. And then there was uh, Asbury United Methodist. That was mostly a black congregation. And it's a really small town. I'm from Philly. So I just was really interested in why the town had two churches and just chatting with people at Asbury, really nice, open people, and just became interested in the idea of a place, a home church that people would go to every summer to reconnect and this notion of home place, that um, a lot of those families had been there for generations, so that was a really sacred space for them, just the town itself and the church and the cemetery. So I was able to um, get some fellowship money to transition my project to studying that that topic. What great timing. Right. So we'll return to your local research in a little bit, but for now, I'd like to talk about uh, your teaching. You've already enjoyed quite a fascinating career. And I'd like to turn to another unusual chapter, which is your time in prison. 
No. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. Your your time spent teaching Thanks. in prison. Sorry about that. Yeah. I understand that this experience has become part of your coursework at WNL, um, a new program called Inside Out. Would you tell us more about that program? Right. So that program, Inside Out, um, started at Temple University, and it was a way for faculty to bring students into the carceral setting to learn alongside incarcerated uh, men and women. And it's a really revolutionary process because you literally turn the world inside out, right? So so university students enter into the world of the prison and they connect with inside folks as fellow students on an even sort of playing field, so to speak. So I wanted to teach at one of the local prisons here, and I was really inspired by the work of Howard Pickett and Jeff Shatton, who's taught at Augusta Correctional, but I, I felt that I needed more training. So I signed up for the Inside Out training, and this was pre-pandemic. They had trainings across the country, and I was trained in Detroit. And the way the trainings worked then was they had chapters of, of, of guys who had gone through the program who uh, in the prisons, and they had these um, working groups there. And so we were able to go into the uh, maximum security prison in Detroit, uh, Maycomb Prison right outside Detroit, and the guys inside basically taught us how to teach. So we were taught by incarcerated individuals how to teach incarcerated, non-incarcerated students. So what did that look like? How was that different? Well, first of all, for me, I, I seem to pick things that make me nervous. So... <laughs> Yep. So death and dying <laughs> makes me nervous. So what do I do? I go off and study that. Um, being in a prison makes me nervous. So I, it, it's it's that it was the first time I'd ever been in in a prison. So that the process of of entering into the prison, and then meeting guys there who I've never met prisoners before, but they all lined up and we interacted with them one on one as equals. So that was a really eye opening experience for me. I really enjoyed and really appreciated the humanistic perspective of that and breaking down barriers. And so basically we spent a day and a half um, at the prison and they did some icebreakers with us. They talked to us about ways to formulate projects. We had we had worked previously before we went on a project. So we presented the project to them. We had um, somebody join us um, to help us flesh out the project. And so we did some final, final presentations. Well, just getting back to what you said about prison makes you nervous. I'm not sure there's a person out there that would not be nervous by going inside the walls. But but you spent a lot of time inside the prison walls uh, with people who have committed a variety of crimes. And I, I can't imagine what a strange experience this must have been. The Inside Out program now involves WNL students. How do you help them prepare? Right. So... Inside Out program has a particular protocol for how to get students ready. And the first thing is that they have to go through, as all, all students would, a, um, a training at, at Augusta Correctional. So they have a day where they're trained about what to do and what not to do. And so the prison has its particular rules for people to come. And of course, all the students and myself have to have background checks and everything like that. But more than that, I think what I try to do is provide, I would say, a model for how to interact. The inside out pedagogy is very much hands off. And so we set up people to have conversations amongst themselves and we're just sort of like the guide on the side. And so empowering them to take on the material and to connect with one another. 
So the first day, one of the things I did was when um, we had we were in the classroom and then the inside guys were coming in, I greeted them individually, shook their hands, gave them the information, and just tried to show students that we're all equal and treated them equally as as, as I you know as possible. I think that goes a long way. And um, and we also a great thing we did as part of the inside out program is the the last day is a celebration where we invite administrators from WNL and ACC to come and the students give presentations together and give a testimonial of how important the project and the class was to them. So they give it really they really get a sense of pride and ownership. Can you share some of some of the responses? Like what what are the benefits to students and right. and how did they right. how did they respond? One of the things I was really fascinated by, which actually I, I gave a presentation on this, was the idea that talking with inside students, they said that the best part of the experience was they felt that they had had the chance to feel humane again, that wow. they were full people, not just offenders. And for the WNL students, it was really surprising to hear that it was the constraints of the situation where we had to go through checks, you know, go through scans. They couldn't bring anything in but a notebook and a pen, that they were cut off from the outside world. They could actually feel like themselves and they didn't have to have any extra sort of buzzing in their head about keeping up with with Instagram or checking their email. They felt that all their sort of class or sort of group allegiances fell away and they could just be themselves in that class at that moment and connecting, which they don't really get that experience anywhere else. So in a way, it was only within the realm of that course inside the prison that they felt free enough to be themselves and to connect with others, which is seems contrary, but actually makes sense. So I'm curious, do students share how this experience may have changed their perceptions of people who are incarcerated? Well, I think it has. One of the differences of the Inside Out program, what we're taught as facilitators, is never ask what crimes um, the inside guys have or women have have, um, been incarcerated for. The point is that the idea is that once you know that, then you can't see them any other way. Um, and it blocks your ability to connect. So we, I never, we never ask them what their crimes are. We don't expect them to tell us. And so the students don't know. The students just know them as their classmate. Because of that, they have a better sense of, gets them really thinking about what our justice system is like and why do we punish people in a certain ways we punish them. It really brings up questions of forgiveness. Is it possible to forgive? Is it possible to change? And I think what it really teaches them is that we all have a connection to each other as fellow humans, which transcends any other differences. So students, most students leave with a sense of social justice and wanting to make a positive change and that they have come to know people who they thought were others actually very close as friends. Are there any, are they allowed to stay in touch after the program No, they're not. They're not allowed to stay in touch. They originally in the Inside Out program were supposed to call each other by first names only, but ACC rules are by last names. So some students actually, um, if they had a really unique last name, they might decide to use a different last name. The point is that the inside students should not be able to contact the outside students and vice versa. The only contact that is to me personally, um, if, they, if the inside students would send me a letter, let's say, um, I could respond to that, but um, not pass it on to the outside students. 
Thank you for sharing that. So bringing this conversation back home for a moment, tell us more um, about the research with the church communities in Brownsburg and Rockbridge County that, that you mentioned earlier. Right. So I had, they were gracious enough to allow me to attend their meetings and go to church services. I was really, really fascinated by the idea of home church and connection to home. One of the things that I started to do was do some background research on the individual families because, as they say, once you get to know people, you realize that they're related somehow. It's a small community, a lot of people moving in and then staying in the area. And so if you go back far enough, people are married to somebody who's married to somebody, right? And, and that's just the way it is in small towns of people that have been there a long time. So I was just really fascinated about that and started to do some research on that. Then I went back and I looked at the records for New Providence Church. And what the the narrative was is that after emancipation, former black members of New Providence Church left to, to um, join Asbury. They founded Asbury. So looking at church records and doing some research back into families, I was able to find out that those black families who stayed after emancipation, a lot of them stayed and worked for their former enslavers. Wow. So that was quite fascinating to me as to what the reasoning, and of course we don't know the reasoning behind it, but there are lots of different hypotheses. Would you share a few of those with sure. us? Sure. One is that it was really important for them to stay in the area. Those that wanted to stay loved the area. They felt connected. And um, it's hard to find work, especially if you've been enslaved. Those who are skilled laborers can do that, but others are domestics and work in agriculture. And so I, my, my hunch was that a, a lot of folks decided that they knew what their sort of former enslavers expected, and they knew how to handle them. They knew their expectations. So almost a comfort. To how, to, how to work within the system. And so they decided to do that and work within the system because it made the most sense economically. And it probably made the most sense politically in terms of keeping a low profile. So this research on enslaved families in the Brownsburg community introduced you to a to different methods of storytelling. And it's funny how one thing leads to another. In 2021, you earned an MFA in writing from Pacific University. Was was it your focus on enslaved communities that sparked your interest in creative writing, or was it something different? It was definitely that. Once I had done some research into former um, you know, so once I'd done research to, to find out that folks were working for um, those who were formerly enslaved them, I tried to really understand the reasoning behind it. And I read a lot of sociocultural theories. I was trying to write ethnographic, sort of anthropological articles, and I felt sort of stale. It felt didn't feel, I mean, I, I published a couple, but it didn't feel like I was really getting at it. One, one of the things that really stood out to me as I was reading over a court case where this enslaver named Preston Trotter had decided that when he died, he wanted to free his slaves. But then the Civil War happened before he died. <laughs> and his, his people that he enslaved were leaving. Um, and he wrote how he felt betrayed by them, that how could they do this to him? How could they leave him alone when he had done so much for them? And after he had died, his widow decided that she shouldn't have to pay any of the former slaves who ran off because 
this was the idea that he was going to leave them some money and so forth. And so in the end, they, the court decided to award a certain amount of money to two former uh, enslaved people who had stayed alongside him. And one got like a couple like dollars, I guess. Was <sighs> it. Spend it all so, in one place. Um, and people had come forth to testify about how Preston Trotter, his friends, talked about how he felt betrayed. So... I've been really interested in the anthropology of emotions. There's lots of research, even on the philosophy of emotions, anthropology of emotions, psychology of emotions. But I really wanted to explore the inner workings, the relationships, get deep into that. So I turned to fiction as a way to do that with giving myself license to imagine in ways that I couldn't. And that just opened the floodgates. I was taking some writing courses at Writer House up in Charlottesville. I had great writing mentors there. I wrote a book based on the research I had done. But at the time, I was going through a divorce and having a midlife crisis. <laughs> so I guess instead of going out and buying a fancy sports car, I just got some student loans and went back to school. <laughs> so I guess it's a good way to- A little more to, practical, little, maybe. I guess. Yeah. So I had, first I thought it wasn't even possible to do this, but then somebody brought my attention to these low residency programs where you go for- a couple weeks every six months, and then the rest of the time is through correspondence with your advisor. And Pacific University um, was one of the places I applied. I got a little bit of a fellowship for my first year, and and I enjoyed, really enjoyed. It's an Oregon going out at west, and so different from here. So that was fun. And then the pandemic happened, so uh, I wasn't able to finish in person, but I did finish virtually. Mm. So it's really historic fiction. I mean, you're using well, your your research, right? And well, that that's how it started. But as I brought my book project to my advisor, she at one point sent me a list of, you know, A through Z, what's wrong with this project <laughs> for so many reasons. And I felt very overwhelmed. So she suggested, why don't you switch to the short story? Mm. Because you can learn a lot about how to craft and something small and it's doable. And in the process, I people said, hey, you know, you're sort of funny. You've got, you've got some <laughs> sense of humor. Why don't you try some contemporary stuff? And then I did that. And seem to go over well and and so I've moved in that direction too. So how much time are you spending writing fiction now? Well I'm working on a project right now. Um, I have a mentor from AWP which is the Association of Writers and Writers Professionals, writing writing professionals. And I'm I'm working on a novel draft. I won't say what it is just in case it doesn't work out. I won't ask. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we meet regularly and I have a chapter due a week right now. Sounds like it's it's easier uh, little bites instead of... It uh, is. And she's pushing me to not go back and revise myself into a hole, just keep mm -hmm. moving forward, which is the problem I've had in the past. Yeah, just it's putting been good. ink on paper. And it's been really fun yeah. to connect with her once a week. Um, Joanne Smith, by the way, shout out to her. Connect with her once a week and just brainstorm the story. It's I can really see the appeal of writing as a team because you can just bounce ideas off yeah. each other. And it gets really great. Um, I've also done some writing workshops in the summer. Kenyon uh, Kenyon Review at Kenyon College has a great one where it's it's generative. So you go in and they give you you're put into groups and your instructor gives you uh, a theme and you have the next 24 hours to turn it over and bring it and share it with in the class. So it's really loosened me up in the ability to produce and to know everybody's in this the same situation and we're just sharing raw work and it's it's quite invigorating. It sounds very high pressure if you've only got 24 hours <laughs> and then to we, turn yeah, it around. And then we're supposed to read in front of the entire group one of our new pieces Oh, so for five minutes. But it, it's been good. I really enjoy it. 
So let's let's change gears a bit now and discuss your current role with the Office of Community-Based Learning. What is the mission of community-based learning? All right. So community-based learning, the office about four years ago started um, by Tammy Helwig. Um, was Mark Connor, Provost Mark Connor, who decided to create an office that would help faculty connect with community partners to create enhanced course experiences. And this is a lot what is happening in the Shepherd program. They connect with a lot of community partner students, do a lot of volunteering, but that's basically within the poverty realm. And so the idea was that they couldn't really work with faculty who wanted to maybe do something outside of that. So the idea was this office would, would be there to connect faculty and students with community partners. And what's really exciting about community-based learning is that it's a reciprocal and mutually beneficial process. So it's not as if faculty are going in and saying, I want to do X, and then the community partner, it's like, okay, well, I guess you can come here and study us. It's not that. It's actually community partner and the faculty get together and talk about common interests. And through those conversations, they can create a project or um, ideas for, say, student volunteering that benefit the community partner as well as the, the faculty in their uh, objectives for the course and the students in the sort of professional and academic development. Could you paint a picture of one of those projects and what that looks like? I created a new course called um, Intro to Community-Based Learning, CBO 100. I was really interested in exploring race and racial history in the institution as well as in the city. And I met with several different constituents. And the idea that came out, I met with students and folks in the community, was maybe doing something called, um, the students called it Unheard Voices of Black Lexington. So it would teach students about uncover the racial history, part of the racial history of Washington Lee and Washington Lee's connection to the community, but also highlight some histories that as white folks in the community, we don't know about. And one of the main one was all the black businesses that existed during the time of segregation. If you think about downtown Lexington, and if you think about where Haywoods is right now, sort of down the street, going down the hill, that was the black business district. And then behind that, Diamond Hill, Green Hill, was the black residential area, which a lot of that is, a lot of those uh, homes have been demolished because of VMI's, you know, construction of, of their uh, core training facility, but sort of around there. And looking at a lot of the documents that Washington Lee had to, from the Woods, Walker Woods family, uh, prominent business owners in the area, they owned that house that's, um, if you look up Henry Street, um, Landome, the big white house at the top, that mm-hmm. was their house that they had owned that. So from that, we were able to glean a roughly around 10 different businesses. Black-owned businesses were able to find out more information, get pictures. And I worked with two students the summer before um, the class started, Tanasia Moya Green and, and Cam Godsey. And we went to the courthouse and looked up deeds. So by the time the class had started, actually, that was in the fall. Sorry, we did it in the fall. And then by the time the class had started in the winter, we had uh, files for every student to work together to put together a narrative and pictures about the Black-owned business. And then I worked with Brandon Busey in IT, and I created a digital map. So I had connected with um, mostly with the Rockbridge Historical Society, who's always, Eric Wilson's always doing interesting projects on Black history. And also I connected with the Regional Tourism Board, and they wanted something for the Lexington Visitor Center. They wanted to highlight these histories in a way that was packageable and manageable. So what we created, what the students created, was this digital map, which is then um, linked to the Historical Society website and also 
um, the visitor center. In the visitor center, we also created these little pamphlets with information. They could, the QR code, they can actually go and find the map and then do a tour, walking tour on their own. And the following year, I worked with Lexington City Council um, Architectural Review Board to create plaques to go on some of those buildings that house those businesses. And that was, and students interviewed some community members about their experiences, which then became a podcast that was also linked to the map. And, and you talked about the the Walker Woods family. Mm-hmm. Is that was that where the Walker program? Came yeah, from? so Walker Woods fan, Yeah, so the Walker program was inspired by the Walkers and named after the Walkers, okay. who are a prominent family. And they owned the Walker Woods Meat Market, which is now McAdoo's. And do you do you work at all with the the Walker program? Right. So the Walker program, um, we are connected. The university is connected with them. A lot of students in different programs have worked with them and worked helping. A lot of times working alongside entrepreneurs in getting them to think broadly about getting the word out about their businesses. So sort of advertising and digital stuff. And so I'm realizing we should probably take a, a step back and, <laughs> and I'll ask you to explain what the Walker program is for our listeners oh, who may right. not be so, local to, to Lexington. Right. Um, well, Stephanie Wilkinson started the Walker program as a way to help, I'll say assist uh, entrepreneurs of color in getting their businesses started in terms of helping them apply for grants to get seed money, bringing in expertise from the law school and the undergrad to get seminars about the legal aspects of owning your business and how to do accounting to help people get get a leg up and get support from a community. And they've had several different rounds and they're very successful. So that's, you know, that's one way that these courses can happen, but there are other ways. So whether it's a project or this learning side by side is another way that happens. And that happened with the Augusta Correctional classes. You know, Professor Pickett and Professor Shatton have taught classes that fall into CBL category. Um, there's also ways that students volunteer their time in local service organizations and then bring that experience back into the classroom to reflect on how that experience has enhanced and or challenged their understanding of the reading. So it really brings a real world aspect to the students learning. And I think one of the best things I think students get out of it is a sense of connection with Lexington. I mean, Lexington is so small, but it's really surprising how much they don't know about Lexington, don't even venture down the hill. <laughs> so they they feel a lack of connection. And this is and not just like a connection that's sort of ideological or sort of sort of fantasy connection, but it's actually like they meet actual people and have actual conversations and connect and do tasks together for some greater good and that really gives a lot of gives students a lot of excitement a lot of satisfaction and feeling like that they their time was well spent here in Washington yeah I could see where that would uh, create a deeper connection with the area before we wrap up our conversation I'd like to talk a little bit about your life when you're not on campus (laughs) so you have you have two children um Liam and Aiden would you tell us a little bit about them right so um Aiden is 10 he is uh, a powerhouse of imagination. <laughs> and Liam is 17. Liam is interested in engineering, but he, he also has high-functioning autism. And their dad is um, Alan McRae. He's in the math department. So we got divorced a while back. So we, we share custody of them and, and raise them together in shared parenting. Yeah, you, well, you shared that um, you, you homeschooled Liam from kindergarten through fifth grade. What was that like? Right. So Liam was a late talker. He didn't, he, by the time he was three and a half, he wasn't saying much. And because of high functioning autism, he didn't really have the skills to cope with stress. So it was pretty obvious that he wasn't going to do well 
at school. And my mom is a teacher. What they say in the South, bless her heart. My mom's a teacher. <laughs> she guided me and said, you can do this. You can homeschool him. And what I found is that I was able to create lessons. And luckily in Virginia, what you can do if you're homeschooling, there are two different ways to go about it. One is, um, well, there's you can join a cooperative. You can do it on your own. And for like, they, they want to know how the progress is going. So they can either, the student could take a test or you can have an outside evaluator come and see how they're doing. You can write a report. So we went with that. And I was able to figure out how well, how best he learned in small chunks with, with, with breaks. And so I just divided up small chunks with breaks. And the way Alan and I worked it is that I would teach here at Washington Lee in the morning so professors have flexibility. And he'd, he'd teach in the afternoon. So he would stay home with Liam in the morning. He'd drive him in in the minivan. I'd meet him in the garage at noon. We'd switch places. I'd drive Liam back. I'd do my stuff for school at home as well as homeschool him and somehow manage to so survive. You your hands day. full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Since you have your MFA, let's talk about creative writing for okay. a minute. Do you have a favorite author? Oh, my gosh. Um Right now, I say what right now, right? Because I always have a favorite author depending on what I'm reading. So mm-hmm. Charlie Jane Anders has written a three-part sci-fi series. I think the first one is second, let's see, the the second one is Dreams Bigger Than Heartbreak. And I, I read the first two. I'm in the middle of the second one. I really enjoy it. I like the sci-fi. I was a big Trekkie fan growing up. I like alternative worlds, um, different ways of being. And I just love books that just blow my mind so okay so great so on that one that would blow your mind do you have a favorite you can't you can't select what you just talked about um yeah uh um philip k dicks do android dream of electric sheep which was the basis for the blade runner movies but it's a lot different but i i really like title. thinking about yeah <laughs> thinking about what it would be like if we had um androids who look like us and act like us and what the problematics of that would be and how we would interact with them. So I really enjoyed that That's book, even though it has its for... problems because it was written a long time ago, but it, it's a good book. Interesting for an anthropologist <laughs> to select that. So what is the best piece of advice for writers that you've heard? I think the best piece of advice for writers is what I also heard from my dissertation advisor, which is sit your butt down in the chair and do it. <laughs> just, just do it. I think that's a slogan for something, right? <laughs> just, it's it, that itself is hard enough. Just keep, just sort of like Dory in in uh, Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. Just keep writing. Just keep writing, and eventually something good will come out of it. Try to put your ego. Just don't listen to your ego. Put it somewhere else. Right, well, I hope it's okay that I share this, but you also dabble in improv and perform with a group in Charlottesville. Right. Who's your favorite comedian? Um. Uh. Well, I. I like Nick Nemiroff. He just passed recently, but I really like his work because he, you you feel like you know what he's going to say, and at the last minute he'll like switch it and and I'll he'll change your impression of exactly what we were just talking about. And I just love those switches in perspective. So I'd say his his work is really great. All right. So you've you've been on stage a bit. Well, which... sort of. It's an improv class. It's through Big Blue Door, and I did improv one, and we did a show and um, my. My kids came, my partner, Mike, came as well. That was really nerve-wracking. Now I'm Improv 2. We're preparing for our next show. And then if I'll still stick with, it'll be Improv 3. And then the teacher says, um, Joel says that maybe we'll, we'll tour around in the summer, but I don't know. Oh, what fun. All right, so any, <laughs> any embarrassing moments? Every time is an embarrassing <laughs> moment. <laughs> <laughs> what is it with you and these massive challenges? In your, I don't in your know. Life? Yeah. Right, how about telling us a joke? No. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> 
but it's improv. I, right? No, but see, that's different. That's stand up. Uh, improv oh, is is um, okay. you have to join. What somebody starts a scene, and then you have to join in. And you have to build off them. And if you start to tell jokes, they call it, you know, showboating and not to do that. So you're oh. supposed to be as a team. Okay. Yeah. That I did not that yeah. I did not know. All right. So you have I'd like to end with a story um, of your experience with a Ouija board here on campus. <laughs> right. So I taught um, a capstone for anthropology um, concentrators in sociology anthropology. And what the capstone is, is all the students come up with their own projects. So I had a student who was really interested in students' understanding of spirituality and sort of otherworldly phenomenon. Now, part of anthropology is, which I didn't mention, is there's sort of the main method is participant observation. So the one is that you observe what people are doing, but you also participate. And so she had lots of observations, plus interviews. We had to come up with some kind of participatory exercise because that was part of the class. So I suggested, why don't you do a Ouija board? Oh, so this idea came from you. It did. <laughs> <laughs> now, her parents were, again, were, were not in favor of this kind of line of investigation. And so she knew if she ordered a Ouija board on Amazon, they would find out because, you know. So she made her own Ouija board. She looked online to find that out. And we started off in Newcomb Hall. I had invited some people to join us. Um, some who were skeptical as well. Some students and a friend of mine came. So the idea of a Ouija board is it's set up and then um, you have this little like plant shirt or something and everybody holds on to it. And the idea is that the spirit would move your, move everybody's hands around to different words or different, and you ask questions. So we tried a Newcomb Hall and she had read the script that she got offline, online <laughs> and, and we tried and we tried and nothing happened. We were just all just sitting there with all of our hands and granted like, Maybe like somebody's hand is moving it, right? You don't know. That's the point, right? So I said, why don't we go to Payne Hall? Because I have heard stories about Payne Hall being haunted. So we went to Payne Hall, and immediately that Planchard thing started flying around the board. No. Yes. Afterwards, everybody was freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) And the skeptics? He was less skeptical and very silent afterwards. Oh, so, um, yes, I do believe that something's going on in Payne Hall. Mm. The fact that we tried Newcomb and nothing happened. The same group went to Payne Hall and something happened. So you won't catch me there at night. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, I, I have heard stories about Payne Hall. Well, Sasha, thank you so much for sharing that story and for, for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Thank you for taking the time, and I appreciate your asking me. Uh, Thank you and our listening audience for tuning in today. We hope you'll visit our website, wlu.edu slash lifelong, where you'll find our show notes for today, as well as a truly great selection of other WNL Lifelong Learning opportunities. Take a look, and until next time, let's remain together, not unmindful of the future.